Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. It's been a special weather phenomena for meteorologists for a long time, but Jim Cantori took it to a whole new level in 2015. Thunder snow. Winter storm fans routinely share their videos of lightning during a heavy snow event. But just how does lightning form in winter storms? How rare is it? There are many open questions, and today we are joined by a rising star in the meteorological community, Matthew Capucci, to get some answers to these questions. Matthew has researched thundersnow. He's a contributor to Capital Weather Gang and will be graduating from Harvard, yes, Harvard, in a few weeks. So let's dive in and break down how a flash of lightning and a clap of thunder can give so many people a jolt of excitement. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's not, to be here. Not, it's not often we get to talk to someone from Harvard there. I don't think people realize there's really some atmospheric sciences, meteorology work going on at Harvard. So so tell us a little bit before we jump into thunder snow, uh, what you're doing at Harvard, what you got going on there. Well, it's a rather unusual program in that Harvard does not offer atmospheric sciences to the undergraduate level. That said, I kind of made a potpourri program in that I take classes here, take classes at MIT. Some are graduate, some are undergraduate, some are literally just me in a classroom with a professor. So it's a unique mix of everything, but it's a lot of fun. So I'll be the only person to graduate with an atmospheric sciences degree. No, that Well, congratulations on that. I've, I've been a follower of you on social media for a while. I'm a big fan of yours as well. I think you do some really great work, particularly with the Capital Weather Gang. Shout out the Capital Weather Gang and Washington Post. They do a great job with their weather coverage. Also want to think WHRB there. I, Matthew is coming to us live from there uh, today. So thank thank that radio station for hosting you today. So let's, let's just jump right in. Everyone has a story about weather that got them intrigued. What's yours? Hmm. That is a really good question. I don't think it was one specific event. I think it was always just a longstanding curiosity. I remember being two or three years old and heading outside to see thunderstorms. When I was seven, I actually saved up my first communion money to buy a video camera so I could quote unquote storm chase. And I would run outside right around the neighborhood on a metal bicycle, not highly advised. <laughs> metal bicycles. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been like that ever since. Yeah, and you know, it's, it, I know we were joking about that, but the reality is one of the things that I kind of harp on a bit is um, how cavalier sometimes people are with lightning in, in stadiums and football games and baseball yes, stadiums. Yeah. Lots of metal around. Uh, they'll sit there during cloud-to-ground lightning, but uh, only leave once it starts raining. I mean, that, is this something that frustrates you or is it just human nature? It really does frustrate me because everyone thinks it's not going to happen to them, but inevitably... For someone, it does have to. And the frustrating part is that this lightning strikes that jump farthest from the storms, the positive bolts, are the ones that are the most damaging and the most dangerous. They travel farther, they occur quicker, and they have a significantly higher peak current. So they do significantly more damage. Of course, any lightning bolt can be deadly, but the ones that far away are much tougher to pinpoint and predict, and they occur with little to no warning. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that. You mentioned positive lightning strokes. So for our Weather Geeks uh, listeners, uh, talk about the differences between a positive lightning stroke and a negative lightning stroke and this concept of clear sky or blue sky lightning. Of course. So when you have 
Dielectric breakdown in the atmosphere, in other words, when you get a spark to jump, it can either be positive or negative, and it can come from the cloud or the ground. And so if you have a positive bolt, it's this area with concentrated ions at the tip of a lightning bolt. We call that the leader head. And essentially, that's a part of the bolt that's propelling forward to make that connection between the cloud or the atmosphere and the ground. And when you have this positive collection of ions, this leader head, it pulls in a lot of electrons, and that's what extends the channel in these 50-yard to about 100-yard increments. Likewise, when you have negative breakdown, it's the opposite. You had the electrons there already at the leader head, and now you're trying to pull positive ions. So it's two different things. The positive ions weigh a lot more. They take a lot longer to move in the atmosphere, and that's why when you have a positive bolt, it's collecting the electrons, which are lighter, freer, easier to move, and it jumps 10 times faster, which is why we say not only are the positive bolts more dangerous, but they occur a lot faster. They just literally leap out of the sky, and you can't see them coming. Right. And, and, and I've heard about this before in my, my many years in meteorology, but is there, in, from your perspective as someone that really thinks a lot about lightning and, and, and investigates this, is there any truth to this notion that positive lightning has a slightly different color, a pinkish, purplish hue, or is that just sort of lightning and, and weather folklore? I believe there is, and I think it might be for two reasons. Of course, research hasn't gone too much into that, but the first being the higher peak current. And so you can kind of think of it as when you're moving across a carpet and you want a spark to jump between your finger and a metal doorknob. You have to move a lot farther along that carpet to get the spark to jump farther. So if you stand farther from the doorknob, same thing is true with lightning. And so when you have these positive bolts, which come from the top of the storm instead of the bottom, that jump a lot farther, they have to have a much higher peak current. So of course, it might be a little bit warmer, it might be a higher current, and so that could influence the color, but in addition to that, it oftentimes occurs in clearer air. So it's drier, there's less precipitation there, and there's a better chance of the color being unobstructed or not filtered out by the water vapor in the atmosphere. We're talking with Matthew Capucci, a graduating senior at Harvard and MIT. I, I, what, what's the MIT connection? I, I see that here in my notes. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually heading there after this. It's unusual because my program is kind of that mix of everything. And so we actually ran out of classes here at Harvard. So I have to take almost exclusively graduate classes. And for the ones that we don't have here, I hop the bus and I go to MIT three days a week. So what will your actual degree be? Is it a, what is it, a, a master's or? Bachelor's, PhD? <laughs> I wish. It's just a BA degree in atmospheric sciences. So, okay, great. So, I, you, But you're, you're actually, I heard you say you're taking graduate courses. I, very talented young meteorologist, as again, someone that I follow, uh, coming to us from WHRB uh, in Boston. Now, we're setting up Thundersnow, and if you haven't seen the epic video of Jim Cantore's reactions to Thundersnow, go out there and Google it, because it, it's, it's really interesting to see his excitement. We're setting it up, but before I get the Thundersnow, I want to stay with lightning for a second, because I, I think people inherently know lightning, they see lightning, but don't necessarily understand how it forms. I think you did a really nice job talking about it there. One of the things that people may not realize is though the cloud-to-ground lightning strokes that we often see in storms, those are the ones that are most dangerous to us down here on the surface. The, the vast majority of lightning is either cloud-to-cloud -cloud or sort of intercloud. Is that correct? Yep, about 80%. Only 20% of the ones that actually hit the ground, but yeah. all can be dangerous. Yeah, and are, are the processes different between, say, cloud-to-ground and cloud-to-cloud -cloud lightning, or are we still dealing with the same physics? Pretty similar processes for the most part. When it goes to hit the ground, of course, it's trying to connect with usually the highest object, but that's not always true. And so sometimes you have this 
stepped leader moving towards the ground, this part of the lightning that's trying to head down, and right before it hits the ground, it doesn't know exactly where to hit, so instead you have these smaller, what are called upward streamers, about 10 or 15 of them reaching up from the ground, trying to connect. Only one of them is the one that connects. But when they do, they form that complete channel, and that's when the bulk of the current, it's like dumping buckets of electrons, moves down that channel. Yeah, a, a great, great discussion. It's something I often talk about at the, at the University of Georgia when I explain lightning in some of my classes as well. Uh, let's deal with a, a few uh, myths as, as it relates, or, or not necessarily myths, perhaps fact, actually. Uh, why, why do they tell people not to get under a tree or be the highest point? And I think you alluded to this a little bit earlier. Yep, so it's all about that connection. It's essentially that you don't want to become one of those upward streamers. Lightning doesn't really want to spend more time moving through the air than it has to. In other words, it takes a path of least resistance because it takes an enormous amount of energy to get a spark to jump through what's called virgin air, essentially no connection whatsoever. And so it wants to take the shortest path. If you make that path easier, because it's easier for electricity to travel through a human body than it is the air, then you're just making it a much higher chance that you're going to be the one that will be struck. So we don't want to do that. Likewise, trees are particularly dangerous because even if you're under the tree, if the tree gets struck, that charge will branch out through the root system and electrocute anything above it. So it's extremely dangerous. Yes. It would be better to seek shelter almost crouching in the ground in the open field than to huddle underneath a tree. Uh, now, I often tell, and this is just something passed on to me as a child, I often tell my kids not to shower or use the restroom during a storm. What's the logic behind that? I, I, mean, I often heard it was related to the fact that if you the lightning strikes the house, uh, the, it, the current can travel through the metal piping. Is there anything tr real about that? Yep, that's exactly correct. I had a neighbor, actually, a couple years ago whose house got struck by lightning. It not only went through their electrical system and got rid of all their appliances, took out their computers, but even blew a hole in the basement where I think there was some sort of meeting or a joint between some plumbing, things of that nature, and the force of it was able to just blow concrete out of the wall. And so it's not only that, but it's just the electrical danger of it itself. Yeah, good point. Now, now I want to pivot now to thundersnow. I mean, what got you so fascinated about thundersnow? I think it's just that it's the weird combination between the seasons. You know, in the wintertime, it's so tough to get convection, to get these plumes of upward-moving air that give rise to the charge separation needed to produce lightning. And so it's something you would almost never see in the wintertime. And so to get that combination, to see lightning, to hear thunder in the middle of a snowstorm is incredibly bizarre and I think magical. Yeah, and, and particularly if there's a good coating of snow because of the oh, insulating yeah. effect of the snow as well. Now, is there fundamentally anything different and about the lightning in a winter uh, convective system? And by the way, for those that are, I know we have a, a variety of listeners to Weather Geeks of all backgrounds. So when you hear Matt and I talk about convection, uh, those essentially thunderstorms, cumulonimbus clouds, even cumulus clouds, cumulus congestions, those are all convection when you get these vertical air currents. And if you can get uh, contact condensation in them. If we can get, reach certain levels in the atmosphere, we can get convection. So uh, when you boil water, that's convection. If you have a convection oven, that's convection. You've got uh, fluid moving around in a vertical current. So wanted to make sure I set some terminology here. But getting back to that, is there anything different about the lightning in winter convection than summer convection? 
There is. Oftentimes, the winter clouds are a lot shallower because you just don't get those enormous plumes, the very buoyant plumes of air moving up. So you're not going to see those towering thunderstorms that go to 40, 50, 60,000 feet like you would in the Great Plains in the springtime or down south in the summertime. So instead, the storm clouds themselves are a lot shallower, and that makes it a lot easier for charges from the top of the storm to interact with the ground. And so, there were actually two researchers in 1994 in Japan, Kitagawa and Michimoto, who went through and they went into these winter storm clouds and tried to diagram their charge distribution, what areas of the cloud were positive, what areas were negative. And they found that there is a lower positive charge, a middle negative, and that's kind of the main charge of the mature storm. And then on top, there's that positive charge. And that's true largely for most thunderstorms. And in the summertime, at home, we can occasionally get the upper positive charge, that extremely energetic positive charge at the top of the storm, to interact with the ground. And that's how we get those dangerous positive bolts. In the wintertime, when the storms are a lot shallower, there's less distance between the ground and the top of the cloud. So it's easier to get those positive bolts from the top of the cloud. And so those are even more dangerous. You get more, a greater percentage of the positive bolts in wintertime lightning. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking today with Matthew Capucci. He's a graduating senior at Harvard. He's also a contributor to the Capital Weather Gang. Ah, let me just circle back because I'm just such a big fan of Capital Weather Gang and Jason Salmonow and Angela Fritz and all the people that write there, um, Jeff Halverson, Brian McNoldy, many, many other contributors as well. How did you come about uh, uh, getting aligned with Capital Weather Gang for the Washington Post? That's actually a really interesting question. To be honest, it was the other way around. One day I opened my email and I saw a message from Jason, and I've been a fan of his for years. He does just, frankly, incredible work. He's a legendary meteorologist, and I was starstruck just reading his email. He offered to see if I'd ever be interested in writing a piece. I said, absolutely, because I've loved writing as long as I can remember. And so I did, and it just became a regular thing. And this was in the summer of 2017. And then all of a sudden the eclipse happened, and then you had Harvey, and then the massive tropical storms. And so it just became me kind of writing every day, and it's been like that ever since. Yeah, well, you, you do a great job. So if you have not had a chance to read some of uh, his content there at Capital Weather Gang, uh, after you finish listening to Weather Geeks, uh, go go check out some of his work. Now, I want to get back into our discussion. We're, we're, we're really geeking out here. This is this is what Weather Geeks is meant to do. we got two meteorologists, atmospheric scientists, just geeking out. So we're geeking out on thunder snow. Uh, Talk a little bit more about the rarity of thunder snow in terms of statistics or numbers, because we know that it's, that it's rare. So talk about how rare it is and why. Of course. I think part of the reason it's rare is just because it's so unusual to get that combination of conditions in the wintertime. To get air rising is pretty unusual. And of course, it rises kind of slowly in the wintertime. You get these broad snowstorms, but it's very difficult to get the speed of the updraft, the 
buoyancy needed to lift air quickly enough and high enough to get sharp separation. And in the wintertime, we actually do it in a different way. In the summer, the air just goes straight up and down. It's traditional updraft, downdraft sort of thing. Pretty easy to visualize. But in the wintertime, it's a very unusual type of energy called conditional symmetric instability. Oh, that's a, that's a nice geeky term. And if you're a meteorologist <laughs> listening, you just had a flashback, perhaps even a nightmare to some of your classes. <laughs> Go ahead, continue. Oh, well, CSI, as they jokingly call it, not the TV show, but conditional symmetric instability is rather tough to wrap one's head around. And so we're not going to go in and go through all the equations. But instead, I want everyone to picture their last time going to a mall. And odds are, in this mall, at one point, you've passed one of those charity change donation canister type things. They're those big, they almost like spiral. They use them for the Rotary Club, the Kiwanis Club. And they're about four or five feet across. And these big spiral things, you put the, put the coin in and it just goes around and around and around. And so I always like to use that as the metaphor because in CSI, you have air travel diagonally, slantwise up into the atmosphere. And so I want you to picture you're this coin, you're going around and around in this spiral type object. And you'd go around continuously if there was no friction. Now imagine you're going around and around and someone gives you a bit of an extra nudge. So now you have this extra momentum and you can travel as this coin up the surface, up the spiral surface and begin to move upwards. That's kind of analogous to how conditional symmetric instability works. You have this air on a diagonal surface and it's going around and around and around in a spiral and you give it just a bit of extra momentum and now it can travel upwards and slantwise. Now it's not going super fast, but sometimes when you have that upward slantwise movement, you're able to get the air high enough that charge separation occurs. It's very rare, it's tough to do. There probably aren't more than about two or three dozen instances of it across the United States every year that are able to produce thunder snow. But when it does happen, it's beautiful to see, and it really is a sight to behold. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I think that I've experienced it perhaps once when I lived up in the Washington, D.C. area, but uh, it was a very rare but very awesome thing to experience. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that comes to mind, uh, you know, it's clearly kind of a neat thing, and we kind of, uh, as meteorologists, are in awe of it, but it's actually pretty dangerous if you're kind of caught out in one of these sort of thunderstorms or thunder snow events within a snow environment. Uh, have people been struck by these? I, I think I remember at least recently there was a, a fatality or at least someone struck by a, How How often does that happen? I know there was a fatality recently. I don't recall exactly where it was. Yeah. I do know in... 1990 in Crystal Lake, Illinois, there were actually nine people severely injured when lightning struck an electrical pole, and the charge traveled through the snow, and this was in the middle of a snowstorm, and injured those nine people who were shoveling or pushing stranded motorists. So it's extremely dangerous. Likewise, I know February 9th, 2017, a number of house fires were started in Providence, Rhode Island. And that's why lightning in the wintertime is just as dangerous as in the summertime or any other season. If you see lightning, if you hear thunder, you have to stay indoors. You don't want to be outside shoveling or moving around because lightning can strike. And with the snow on the ground, that charge can travel even farther. Yeah, I would even perhaps argue that it may be even more dangerous in the wintertime because people just aren't expecting it and they're out playing in the snow or uh, reveling in the fun winter environment. You might just not be expecting it. So I, I think in, in from an, you know, an acclimatization or just an expectation standpoint, that, that could lower our, our expectation level for these events. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I know last year there was an event, or two years ago, and I actually stayed in the roof here at Harvard for about four and a half hours in the middle of a blizzard waiting for it. Finally, we got one flash, and then we got a couple after that. And I was texting all my friends, you know, don't be outside. There was a snowball fight going on in Harvard Yard. And I was trying to convince people, no, this is dangerous. And people just didn't take it as serious as, as they ought to. And I'm hoping going forward, people will kind of heed these warnings exactly. and really consider how dangerous it is. Exactly. Now, you know, I'm a meteorologist, and I I, I, I'm the director of an atmospheric sciences program, but I also um, matriculate in a geography department. So let's talk about the geography of thunder snow. Where is thunder snow most common? Are there any geographical preferences? And if so, why? Uh, there are probably about three or four different hotspots across the United States, and they all form in different ways. So the Intermountain West is a great area in the wintertime, I'd say, especially from like December through early February, to get these isolated thundersnow storms. You know, have all the mountains out there. It's easy for pockets of air to be forced upwards extremely quickly, but on a very local level. So you won't get widespread thundersnow. Instead, you'll get, you know, maybe a brief pulse here or a pulse there, where you get an intense snow shower that can produce a bolt of lightning or two, but not very widespread. Then, in November to early January, over the Great Plains, so especially Iowa, Nebraska, northern Kansas, that neck of the woods, you can get larger-scale storm systems where you have what's called overrunning. So there's cold air at the ground, cold air for probably about two or 3,000 feet, and then above that, warm air enough to sustain a thunderstorm, but the precipitation falls as snow. So it forms more in the way of a typical thunderstorm, but instead you can get much more widespread thundersnow. Now we travel to the Great Lakes. Those lake effect snow bands, especially from probably October to late December, early January, when you have a lake effect snow band, the water temperatures are warmer than the air temperatures significantly, and so you can get massive updrafts of rapidly rising air, producing those epic snowfall rates you see in, you know, Buffalo, Rochester, New York, with six to nine inches of snow per hour and intense thundersnow, sometimes even small hail. And then off the East Coast, we sometimes get either squalls along a cold front that can occasionally produce lightning, or more commonly, those big nor'easter-type storms, like the so-called bomb cyclone on January 4th of last year, that produced the CSI, the slant-wise rising air, needed to get charge separation and eventually thundersnow. So a number of different hotspots, all form for different reasons, but it's just as mystical and magical every single place. Yeah, and I think that I think you did a nice job sort of wrapping that into um, sort of a discussion because no thunderstorm event, uh, depending on the geography, is the same. I think there are very different mechanisms depending on where they are. What internationally do are there any hot spots that you know of, or have you not really looked into that? Hmm, that's a really good question. I haven't looked into it super formally because lightning tracking is kind of tougher. I know that it's actually quite common on Mount Everest, believe it or not, but that's <laughs> that's for a different reason because it's it's a little bit higher than everywhere else. We'll yeah, say. just a wee teeny bit. What yeah. what about how do we t how do we detect thunder? Now, now clearly we detect it with our ears, the thunder, and we can see it, the lightning. But are there any formal detection methods? Or are we using the same sort of national lightning detection networks, or even now the the weather satellite, the GOES satellite, has a lightning mapper on it? Um, are those the same techniques used? Yep. So we commonly use the National, detection, uh, National Lightning Detection Network, which is a series of, I think, 150 or so sensors across the United States. And they have magnets built into them. And what happens when you have a lightning strike, very locally it enhances the electric field. And that, in turn, produces a magnetic field. And these fields keep, I guess charging each other up, and they spread out over time. And they weaken over distance, but these sensitive instruments can determine where 
a lightning strike has occurred based on using two or three sensors and the overlapping signatures they get to pinpoint where that lightning did take place. So we use that. In addition, we sometimes rely on ground reports because the National Lightning Detection Network can only see what's hit the ground. Nothing in the air, nothing cloud to cloud, and that makes it tougher to know where thundersnow is occurring because oftentimes those lightning bolts don't hit the ground. And so we literally require people on the ground sometimes to tweet in, oh, I heard it here, I heard it there, or I saw it. And that can be tricky, too, because the snow acts as an acoustic suppressor. In other words, it's tough to get loud sounds to propagate in an environment that's heavily snow-covered. So the sound of the thunder doesn't travel more than a few hundred meters away. And resultantly, unless you're right near the flash, you're not going to see or hear the thunder snow. So it's tougher to predict, and it's tougher to figure out where it's occurring, even when it's already going on. Yeah, that's actually, a, I want to stay right there for a second because we kind of anecdotally or teach uh, some students, and I've often shared this with people in more public talks as well. Uh, when you hear, see lightning, you know, start counting. And if you get to five seconds and you hear thunder, the, the storm's probably about a mile away. And then if it's, you hear uh, thunder, you know, 10 seconds later, it's probably about two miles away. First of all, is that a good, accurate uh, approximation? And then secondly, based on what you just said, that seems to change if you're in a snowy environment. That's actually a really good approximation. Sound travels at 334-ish meters per second, which is a little less than a quarter mile per second. And so, yeah, it takes about five seconds for the sound to propagate one mile. That's distance-wise. But in terms of how quickly the sound drops off, in other words, how quickly the volume reduces, it really depends on the environment itself. Sometimes in the summertime, you can have a temperature profile in the atmosphere that causes the sound to go very far distances. Other times, not so far. In the wintertime, the snow on the ground prevents that sound from traveling long distance in the same way that soundproofing does. When you put styrofoam up on a wall, for instance, I know right now in the radio studio that I'm in, there are a bunch of these little styrofoam nubs on the wall, and those prevent any kind of sound sign, uh, rather side sounds from influencing the show. Same thing with thunder snow. The snow kind of acts as that acoustic suppressor and prevents the sound from going more than a couple hundred meters. Yeah, that, that's a great discussion. We're talking to Matthew Capucci from Harvard, and you were talking about detection methods. Now, recently, NOAA launched the GOES satellite and has a lightning mapper. It's detecting lightning in a bit different way from some of the sort of ground-based detection systems that you discussed. Is that correct? It is. So that relies on light. Lightning emits a spectrum of different lights. Some we can see, others are infrared, meaning we can't see them, but they're still there. And so instruments can pick them up even as far away as space. So on that orbiting satellite, they can look down, see the spectrum of the lightning, and realize, okay, it's right there. And it pinpoints it with a much greater degree of accuracy, too, versus on the ground, we can't look for light. We have to look for the electrical signatures, which weaken with distance from the lightning strike, so we don't get quite as accurate of a pinpoint as to where it's occurred. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax the way car buying should be. 
And welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we're talking with Matthew Capucci. And if you have been listening to this podcast, you see what I mean earlier when I say this is a very impressive young meteorologist, atmospheric scientist, a rising star, all of that. It's not hyperbole. This this is a talented young man, and I, I can't wait to see what happens along the way with his career. Uh, we're talking about thunder snow, and we're going to talk a little bit more about some of his other interests later in the podcast as well. But I want to stay on thunder snow for a second. I know even in some of the research I've done over the years and have looked at, there are relationships between rain rates, convective rates, and lightning. Do some of those types of relationships hold, for example, between snowfall rates and lightning? Absolutely. And it's all based on the speed of the air going up. The more air goes up, the more air comes down. So, you know, what goes up must come down. And so that's why in a summertime thunderstorm, you have air rapidly rising. And the more it rises, the more precipitation can form, and the more it comes back down. Same thing is true in the wintertime. To get that charge separation, you need air rising pretty high and pretty quickly. And so those same things that produce the charge separation needed to produce lightning are the same things that give rise to heavy snowfall rates on the order of two or even three or more inches per hour. So more of that air goes up, more comes down. Down, and it brings the snow with it. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's it's basic meteorology, if, as, as we've talked about in the podcast today with these convective rates or convection. Um, so it, it's not surprising, but I think some people might be a little surprised to understand that there is a relationship. I, mean, I, I know there have been efforts to use flash rates or lightning rates uh, to detect snowfall rates, rain rates, even the potential for tornadic development in storms. Is that correct? Yep. I don't know a ton about it, but I do know there's a significant trend where about 10 to 15 minutes before tornado forms, you will get a sudden lightning jump. And two it's not sigma a jump. jump. Yeah, the two sigma jump, I think it is. Yeah. 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 It's, it's bizarre, too. And scientists still don't, as far as I know, know exactly why that occurs. But what they do know is it's not in the cloud to ground strikes, but rather the cloud to cloud, which is pretty unusual to think about. And I think it'll be interesting to see where that research goes in the future. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of my producers wanted to me to ask you about wind turbines and lightning? Ah, yes. Yeah, what's, yes. what's going on there? You know, this will sound kind of silly, but I think thundersnow is largely man-made. And here's why. I've seen about three or four pretty impressive thundersnow storms, and me being me, I went back and I wanted to find where all the lightning strikes occurred. So there's a pretty good one on February 9th, 2017. We had a pretty impressive one as well on January 4th of last year. March 7th of last year, there was thundersnow up and down New Jersey, I-95 corridor into New York City. And I think, was it the... The World Trade Center in New York City, that storm actually got struck by lightning in the middle of the snowstorm. Yep. And so we have three or four pretty good thunder snow events that I drew upon. And I went back and I saw some of these produced 30, 40, even 100 lightning bolts that hit the ground. And I wanted to see where these occurred. And so I noticed, huh, there are these weird clusters around cities. So I saw that. And then I saw some in the middle of the countryside. So I went online to the FCC website and checked out registrations for towers, transmission towers, radio towers, television towers in the area. And what I found was that you generally have significantly tall towers right where the lightning strikes occurred. So I did that. And then curiosity got the better of me. I actually tracked down one of these towers in Montville, Connecticut on January 4th last year where I saw it's it's a very rural area, and I saw that lightning strikes had occurred there. And so I called a limousine company 
whose offices were right near one of the towers in the middle of nowhere. And I spoke with the secretary there and I said, hi, this might sound a little bizarre, but I noticed on a lightning plot, lightning appears to have just struck the tower there. Did that occur? And she immediately got super excited. Oh, I didn't think anyone would know about this. And she told me lightning had struck no less than five times during that snowstorm, but only the tower. And so I noticed that almost 90% of the lightning strikes that occurred were all to man-made objects. And of course, man-made objects are usually the tallest ones, but in the summertime, you don't have that. You might have 20%, 30% striking the the buildings or the towers, but in the wintertime, more than 90%. And so I tried to figure out why, and it turns out there are a couple of reasons. Number one is that most of the towers I saw were between 270 and 380 meters tall. That's roughly the same height as the cloud base. And so that same height as the cloud base means these towers poke into the just the bottom of the cloud and gather the positive charge at the base of the cloud, that positive lower charge we talked about a little bit earlier on. And when you have something pointy, like a tower, like a building, like a TV tower, anything like that, it really focuses that charge into a very narrow area. And to get lightning, you have to have something called corona. That's a rapid movement of electrons into one place, and they all gather together. And that locally changes the dynamics of the atmosphere enough that it's easier to get a spark to jump. And so you have that when you have these pointy objects in the lower positive charge. Then they would strike between that and the middle negative charge. So essentially, these towers serve as a focal mechanism for the lower positive charge, and the discharge occurs between that and the middle negative charge in the cloud. And so that's why these man-made buildings, man-made objects, can really trigger thundersnow in environments where otherwise the charge is there, but we just couldn't really tap into it. So that's one. The second thing is that wind turbines kind of have an effect with the wind. And so I'll break that down a little bit. When an object goes into corona, when a discharge is soon to occur, and electrons are building up in an object, that ionizes the air around them. In other words, it almost produces a shield of an opposite charge in the air around that prevents the tall object from being struck. It's like a protection mechanism. But when you have enough wind on the order of about 18 meters per second, so almost 40 miles per hour, the wind can essentially blow away that shielding charge, and as a result, it leaves the tip of that object with the electrons gathering, or with the charge gathering, exposed. And so that's why in windier environments, you're actually more likely to see thunder snow because you can blow away these shield charges and get that tip to be struck. So that's why wind turbines are important. They're just tall enough to poke into the lower positive charge, and if they're spinning, they spin fast enough to outrun their shielding charge, their shielding layer, and expose them to being struck. So a lot of interesting dynamics here, a lot of different mechanisms taking place, but it all culminates into thundersnow being largely man-made. Yeah, this this was a fascinating discussion, and I, I was familiar with this a little bit. I think you even wrote something in Forbes about a a, a, a tower induced thundersnow event somewhere in Louisiana a couple of years ago. But uh, some of the sort of in depth discussion that you just added to the to the um, the, the, the plate there was fascinating. So thank you for that. Uh, I'm talking with Matthew Capucci from Harvard here on Weather Geeks podcast. He's also a contributor to Capital Weather Gang and a very talented scientist. Looking forward to seeing where his career goes. And so on that, now I would like to pivot the last part of the podcast 
to Matthew. I want to talk a little bit more about you. You chase weather uh, storms. You like solar eclipses. You've traveled the world. First of all, tell us about your chasing experience. Um, my chasing experience is kind of unusual. So I would informally follow storms in Massachusetts, where I'm from, for a number of years, but nothing rivals those storms in the Great Plains or Dixie Alley in the Deep South. And so I was seeing some cool things, hail from time to time, occasional funnel clouds, but nothing really significant weather-wise until my freshman year of college. And I was looking at the weather models one day. This was right around April 26th. 2016, looking at the models, and it looked like a really big event was going to unfold in Oklahoma. And I thought, man, I, I wish I could go out to Oklahoma for that. And so I started poking around websites, and I thought, wait a second, Spirit Airlines is offering $65 round trip to Dallas, and I can get a car for $100. But here's the thing, I was too young to rent a car. <laughs> Because I was only 18 at the time, sure. and I'm still only 21. And so I called my father at home and said jokingly, hey, want to go to Oklahoma tomorrow? And he doesn't really like to travel too much. And he said, oh, yeah, book the tickets. And so I knew he was joking, but I booked them. <laughs> and you can imagine his surprise the next morning when I texted him. I said, all right, I'll see you at the airport in two hours. And sure enough, we went down to Oklahoma just for two days, chased the storms. It was so much fun. And I thought, I have to do this again. So the next year I went back, it was 2017. I was there for the entire month of May, and the storms last year and the year before weren't too impressive. But we got into one pretty good storm on May 15, 2017 in Elk City, Oklahoma. Now, being a department of one, I don't really have any weather friends I could take. So I took a friend of mine who had no background in meteorology before and had never even seen hail. So we're driving down the road, and I saw a pretty good storm up ahead, checked the radar, and I turned to him and I said very calmly, I'd like you to reach under your seat and grab the safety gear, please. And he said, what are you talking about? Just like on the airplane, you know, if the pilot said, oh, put the life vest on, you get kind of apprehensive. I said, no, there's safety gear down there. Please put it on. So he pulls out a hard hat, gloves, safety goggles, and starts to panic and says, what's this for? I said, hail. How big is this hail going to be? Quarter size? <laughs> I said, oh, Aaron, no, 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 no. Softballs. Yikes. And sure enough, about two miles down the road, I see the first one come down, and I'm like, okay, we're in it now. We lost a windshield, lost a side mirror, and it was definitely worth it. And I will emphasize that <laughs> this is all a calculator risk. It's done very safely. Sometimes the hail, of course, can be a bit of a surprise, but as long as you know what you're doing, it is entirely safe. The next year, 2018, I went back. I borrowed the help of my cousins, who are actually all welders. They own their own welding company. And we built for my truck a special cage. And then my father built plexiglass window covers that would suction cup onto the window. So I had window protection. I was completely set to go through the core of any storm that I wanted to. And again, we got softball-sized hail. We got a nice tornado. And even on May 12th last year, a thunderstorm made from wildfire smoke. There was a very strong capping inversion that day, meaning air parcels near the ground just couldn't rise. But the fire in Clarendon, Texas, a wildfire broke out, was so strong that the steam from it and the smoke broke through that layer in the atmosphere and produced a 50,000-foot-tall thunderstorm that was completely orange and black in these weird amber colors and purple lightning. And that was pretty memorable. Yeah, that's uh, we're talking about the pyrocumulonimbus clouds. And one of the things that's important about 
any really strong convection or, or many strong convective storms is the capping inversion or a cap. You often hear meteorologists talk about them. If you can sort of bottle up all of that en- energy and it can eventually break through somehow, you can get explosive convective development. That's exactly what Matthew was just describing. That was really a fascinating story about, about your, uh, and I, I have a, my own story with some tennis ball and baseball size hail here in Georgia. Uh, just last year, we were coming home from dinner. We were in our subdivision and getting pounded. Didn't have any safety gear, but our, our, our our car took a, a bit of a beating from that particular storm, so I can certainly relate. What about your solar eclipse experience? That was that was quite unusual, and I actually chased that storm that you got the hail on when I was in Atlanta last year and turning at the Weather Channel, but I didn't take it as far as I should have. But as for the eclipse, I have always wanted to see a total solar eclipse. It was in my bucket list since I was probably about, I want to say, maybe seven years old. And so I knew this one would occur on August 21st, 2017. But I also knew it occurred across the United States in rather rural areas. There wouldn't be a ton of hotels. And further in the east where it would be more busy, there'd be more options, it would likely A, cost more because of all the people, but B, it'd be tougher to book a year in advance when I wanted to because there could be clouds. And one cloud can, of course, ruin the view. So a year in advance, before the prices surged, I booked a ticket out to Grand Island, Nebraska, which was in the path of totality. I booked a hotel, I got the last hotel room, and I made all my arrangements. And then about two weeks before, Dan Satterfield, who is, again, another legendary meteorologist. Yeah, shout out to Dan. I know him well. Yeah, he's, he's one of my favorite meteorologists. One of the best meteorologists I've met, but also one of the nicest, kindest people I've ever met. He's just a phenomenal person. I hope to be half the guy he is someday. But he is a chief meteorologist at WBOC in Delmarva, and he told me he was considering going out to Nebraska. I said, oh, you know, if you come out, we should definitely meet up. And it worked out really well because he couldn't find a hotel room. They were all booked up months in advance, and I was too young to drive to rent a car. And so we ended up, all his you know, whole family and I, crashing in my hotel room. And then the next day, we drove out to the Wyoming border and sat in this field in the middle of the plains, beautiful yellow flowers everywhere, and waited. And, you know, part of me, I, I knew it would happen, but part of me was still kind of doubtful. I was like, okay, the sun's still up there. Nothing's happening. And then about 15 minutes before totality, it just got weird out there. The shadows changed, the color of the light changed, the shadows were sharper, it was pretty ominous, and the temperature was dropping. But to the naked eye, you couldn't really see anything was different, you could just feel these weird things happening. And then all of a sudden, you see the shadow just descending on the western horizon, twilight occurring in 15 to 20 seconds, and before you know it, you see the moon completely obliterating the sun, and the milky white corona of the sun extending millions of miles out into space. It was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. And I actually booked a ticket to La Serena, Chile for July of this year so I can see the next one. Wow, that's that, yeah, and that's fascinating. We, we had a big event at the University of Georgia, and we were not at totality for the most recent solar eclipse, so it was cool, but not anywhere near what you experienced at, at 100% totality. So I, I'm, a, I'm a bit jealous of you there. Uh, what are some of the other cool places you've traveled around the world? Oh, wow. So I actually have only been in the United States for about three weeks now. And I did 103,000 miles in the past 365 days. It's been a lot of fun. So I started last year, of course, down at the Weather Channel, interning there. And then I drove home, had two days to turn around. And I hopped a flight, actually four flights, to Nome, Alaska, where I went and I met up with the Coast Guard research crews on board the U.S. Coast Guard cutter, the Healy. And I helped with plankton research, which is kind of outside my field, for about a month on this boat 
but it was a research program trying to figure out how harmful algal blooms respond to climate change. Pretty interesting results that they're still processing right now. And so I was on that ship for three or four weeks, no Wi-Fi, no internet, couldn't see land, no television. It was an interesting experience and one that I would not pass up for the world. It was amazing to be up there in the Arctic. Yeah, no, And that's... so then I flew home. I had one day on Cape Cod, and then I flew to San Francisco for a study abroad program. I was there, Vietnam, Morocco, and Bolivia. And <laughs> wow. so the Sahara Desert while I was in Morocco has to be one of the most just incredible places I've ever seen. And the reason, not just the desert itself, but the stars. Because here in Boston, we can only see about 30 to 40 stars per night. In rural parts of New England, maybe 800. And in the best places in the United States, perhaps 2,000. In the Sahara Desert, you see about 5,200, which is close to the theoretical max of 5,400. So in other words, you're seeing the entire Milky Way, the entire galaxy. We were seeing meteors left and right. One struck right overhead, broke into a bunch of different little bits that you could actually see moving in all different directions. It was one of the most amazing evenings that I've ever experienced, just being able to see. It was like being in space. Yeah, this is this is just, you can clearly see why Matthew is so talented as a scientist. He's he's well-traveled, he's thoughtful, and uh, he's he's very impressive. Uh, Got to wrap this up. This has been one of my favorite podcasts, Matthew. Thank you for joining us. So just before we go, though, what's what's next for you? Well, if you wouldn't mind whispering to the Weather Channel, I would love a job there. That's actually my dream job, that or a national affiliate network. I would love to be the person you see on air with the forecast and hopefully inspiring people to look up in the sky once in a while and really experience the passion and the love of weather that I have. Something tells me that whatever you desire, you're going to have an opportunity. So uh, good luck with, with that. And thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you. Thank you.